0: And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to the disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but yet what you will. He came and he found them sleeping. He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping. For their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Is it not enough that the hour has come that the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners? Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests to the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by uh, drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple, teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled, and they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him, but nothing, with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, and they left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This is the word of God.
1: Amen. Thanks, uh, thanks, Claire. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Please join me. Father, we come now and ask that you would help us as we study this part of the scripture together. Help us to believe that Jesus' death is the way that we can have hope. It's the way that we can have peace. Help us to understand that the anguish that Jesus went through for us, for people who don't deserve his love, shows how much you, Father, love us. And we pray that that would be transformative for us even this morning. And we we'll ask it in in the name of Jesus, Amen. Some of our best literature and film, especially in Western culture, uh, depicts you know what what happens to great heroes when they die or when they're facing death. And there's a million different examples you could use for this. I think about Braveheart. You know, William Wallace. 20 20 years ago, amazing, that that movie's 20 years old, uh, came out 20 years ago, and William Wallace faces death by screaming, freedom, you know. Uh, Other people face death very stoically and passively. Plato, the great ancient Greek uh, philosopher, tells us about the death of Socrates. He had to drink hemlock, he had to drink poison, and Plato famously tells us that uh, Socrates is very stoic and sort of almost cutting dry jokes with his captors right before he drinks the hemlock and dies. Others die sort of in a hot-blooded uh, last gasp of fury and anger. There's all sorts of ways that people face death and go through death, and there's all sorts of different views as to how the best way to die is. You know, the Greeks say it's by being stoic and indifferent. Um, more hot-blooded cultures might say you should go out strong and screaming and kicking and punching all the way until the last second. As we reach the end of Jesus' earthly life, it's interesting to see how the Bible portrays the death of Jesus, and particularly how it portrays his emotional state as he faces, in the next 24 hours, crucifixion on a cross and death. We find that Jesus isn't stoic or impassive. In fact, he is in deep emotional anguish and turmoil in this story this morning, and yet he's also still faithfully submissive to the sovereign and goodwill of his Father, of God. And as we think about that this morning, I want us to understand more and more how significant what Jesus is facing is for you and for me. So let's set the stage real quick. We're, we're really now in the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. Uh, by this time tomorrow, He will be dead. So we're coming near the end of the Gospel of Mark. And all the way back in Mark 9... And ever since then, ever since Jesus had the transfiguration, one of the major themes going through the gospel has been the contrast between the disciples who are dim-witted and hard-hearted and dull and slow to understand, and Jesus, who always seems to be in control, who knows what's going on, who's serene and powerful and gracious and compassionate. And today, that contrast between the disciples on the one hand and Jesus on the other, sort of really hits its maximum possible effect. And um, what we're going to see this morning is basically Jesus is left for dead. Uh, Jesus is abandoned. Jesus is betrayed. Jesus uh, finds himself this morning in our story in absolute and utter isolation. And everyone leaves him. Everyone runs away. In his darkest hour, his friends who've been with him for three years, they turn their backs on him. They tuck tail and run as soon as they can. And yet Jesus amazingly still submits to the will of God out of love for us. It's really To be honest, it's an incredibly dramatic story that we're jumping into here. So Jesus has finished the Last Supper, which we looked at last week, and now he goes out to the western side of the Mount of Olives to this garden, or to this place where there's an olive orchard that has come to be known as the Garden of Gethsemane. And here we get really one of the most powerful and moving sections in all of the Bible. And part of the reason for that is that we get a peek into the inner turmoil, A peek into the inner turmoil that Jesus is experiencing and the immediate aftermath of it. So here's how I want to summarize our story for the morning, okay? Main idea. The anguish Jesus endures for people who abandon and betray him shows the profound depth of his love for us. The anguish that Jesus endures for people who abandon and betray him shows the profound depth of his love for us for us. This story is told in four movements or four parts, and we'll look at those briefly in order. First, Jesus anguishes. Second, the disciples abandon. Third, Judas betrays. Fourth, Jesus is arrested. Jesus anguishes. Disciples abandon. Judas betrays. Jesus is arrested. That's the roadmap. Here we go. Jesus anguishes. The center of the story is Throughout Mark, and even also this morning, is Jesus, Jesus himself. And there's a lot to see in our verses today, but I want our primary focus to remain on Jesus. So what does he do here? He invites his three closest buddies, Peter and James and John, verse 33, out into the garden, and he asks them to wait and watch and pray with him. And then he goes off a little further to be alone, and he begins to pray. It was obviously loud enough for the people to hear because Mark has recorded what Jesus said for us through the eyewitness testimony of Peter. And this is really worth an entire sermon series, but let's just summarize what Jesus does here. And I hope you notice, what he does is use extraordinarily emotional language. I mean, look what he says. My soul is very sorrowful, uh, even to death. Literally, he is on the verge of collapsing in terror in fear, in sadness and sorrow. Mark tells us that he was greatly distressed and troubled. Horror and anguish are overwhelming Jesus in this moment in the garden as he's praying, as he's bearing his soul to the Heavenly Father. And so the question is, why? Why is Jesus so anguished? and it's really not because he's facing death. I mean, he knows he's facing death. He's predicted that numerous times. He even says in verse 29 that or 28 that after he's raised up he'll go before the disciples to Galilee. He knows he's going to get raised from the dead after 3 days. It's not death itself that is causing him such terrible turmoil. It is what he calls the cup. The cup that is causing him such deep distress and anguish. Look in verse 36. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible. Remove this cup from me. Another gospel tells us that here Jesus is sweating drops of blood, and he feels like his heart is about to be swallowed up because he knows that the worst of what he is about to face is not mere death. It's the cup, you see. Now the cup, as we saw back in chapter 10 of Mark, is a metaphor. It's a metaphor that's used regularly in the Old Testament, the scriptures of the people of Israel in Jesus' day. And it's a metaphor for the anger and the wrath of a just God against all that is wrong with this world. For example, in... The prophet Ezekiel, he writes this. God says, you will drink a cup large and deep, the cup of ruin and desolation, and tear your breasts. And God says to Isaiah that he is going to give Israel the cup that made you stagger, the goblet of my wrath. Isaiah 51. So what Jesus is facing here is the anger and the wrath of a holy God against all that is wicked and evil and perverse and wrong in human creation. Sinclair Ferguson writes this, "'Jesus was about to be exposed to the one thing in life he really feared, not the cruel death which would end it, but the indescribable experience of feeling himself to be God-forsaken.'" He felt he could not live. Indeed, that life was not worth living without the consciousness of his father's love for him. Pause and think about that. Really think about it for a moment. For the first time in history, not just for the first time in history, for the first time in, in eternity, in infinite time, Jesus the Son is going to be scorned by God the Father. Jesus has always lived in perfect harmony and full love with his Father and with the Holy Spirit in the Trinity. He has dwelled in the depth of God's delight in him, always. But now that is going away. That's what it means to drink the cup. Jesus is now about to face the rejection of the Father. The Father's separating himself. The Father's anger and wrath against all that is corrupt and wrong in our world. All of God's rightful wrath against the wickedness of the universe is going to get dumped on the head of Jesus at the cross. And it terrifies him. It causes him almost overwhelming, deeply profound grief. He is so dismayed that in 36 he asks God if there can be another way. Just consider how profound that verse alone is. Jesus, God the Son, says, Father, if there is any other way, let this cup please pass from me. But notice there that in the context of this deep anguish, in the context of his horrendous suffering, in the context of the cup that he is about to drink, in the context of all of that, there is still a trusting. You see it there? Let this cup pass from me, but not what I will, but what you will. 36. I mean, think about it. Never has another human felt such an intense desire to be spared the will of God. And never has any human exercised such humble, obedient faith in the Father's will as this moment. Jesus is willing to submit to God's will in the midst of his anguish and fear and disturbed spirit because he knows that God is good. He knows that God loves him and loves us. Listen, he is willing to bear the wrath of God for us because he is confident of the love of God for him. He's willing to bear the wrath of God for us because he's confident of the love of God for him. And and by the way, by way of application, just for a second, among other things, Jesus here is laying out an example for you and for me of what it means to trust. We can trust God. We can trust God even when our circumstances are screaming at us that we shouldn't. That is what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is basically saying, God, I don't want to go through this, but I trust you. He's saying, I trust you no matter what I feel right now because I believe you are good. He's saying, My present circumstances, God, are terrible. But I know that if you lead me through suffering, it is only for my long-term joy. If God brought Jesus through suffering into joy that is much greater than any we will ever experience, then we can also trust that God will bring us through suffering, no matter how hard it is right now, into joy. And so, of many things that's happening here, one of them is God is encouraging us to be able to say by faith, not what I will, but what you will, God. That's one of the things that Jesus' anguish teaches us. So, Jesus is anguishing in the garden. He's overwhelmed to the point of death with sorrow. What's going on with the disciples? Verse, well, secondly, let's look first. Verse 27, 28, 37, and following. We see the disciples abandoned. Jesus is going through this dark night of the soul. And the disciples are doing a couple of things at the same time. First of all, they're falling asleep on him in the garden, right? Three times. After Jesus asked them to pray for him, to keep watch, that is to be spiritually alert and to lift up in prayer Jesus in his darkest hour, three times they fall asleep. And in 29, Peter has just said, if everyone else abandons you, I will not abandon you. I will die for you, Jesus. I will be there with you all the way to the end. You can count on me. An hour later, an hour, he's getting a nap in, in the garden. The disciples can't do what Jesus asked them to do. They can't even stay awake in prayer. The contrast here, again, really it's, it's vivid. It's stunning. Jesus is getting ready to have the anger of the maker of all things poured out on him. Okay. He's getting ready to have the vengeance of God emptied on him. He's about to drink the cup to the last drop and the disciples are taking a nap. The disciples' eyes were very heavy, verse 40. They could not help Jesus. They could not give Jesus what he needed from them support and care and prayer. And then, secondly, in verse 48 and 49, after Jesus is arrested, look there. He's betrayed by Judas. We'll talk about that in just a second. Mark simply tells us there in verse 50 they all left him and fled. What a tragic verse. Can you just live in the tragedy of the story there for a moment? Pretend you don't know the ending. Live in the tragedy of the story. These guys, these buddies of Jesus, his associates, his comrades, his disciples, they have no power, no ability to rescue him, right? They have no way to help, no courage to stand by him. They have nothing. They leave him. They abandon him. They bail on him their strength fails, their hearts sink, they run away. Isn't it the Marines that say, leave no man behind, right? That's one of their slogans. Leave no man behind. There's all sorts of great movies, Saving Private Ryan, all sorts of great war movies that show the intensity of loyalty to one another and friendship towards one another for soldiers and in other contexts as well. Leave no man behind. The disciples certainly don't do that here. They abandon Jesus in his darkest hour. Listen, if there is a point in all of the Bible, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, this is a great, a great moment for you to hear this. If there's a point in the entire story of the Bible when human weakness is more clear, I would love to know what it is. I mean, there's probably not another moment where the weakness and folly and fickle nature of people is evident than it is here. I mean, remember just a few chapters back, <laughs> James and John, the brothers, they say, Jesus, remember, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Remember that great question they asked Jesus? Just give us whatever we want, Jesus. And by the way, we're going to be on your right and on your left side. And Jesus says, Are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Remember what they say? What do they say? What do they say? Yeah, we're able, no problem. They can't even get to the place where the cup is poured out. They're too tired, they're too weak, they're too frail. Peter just said, I'll never fall away. And yet, when the time comes for these guys to help Jesus, to stand by him, they don't. Let me put it this way. What God asks them, when God asks them for support, for help, they cannot provide it. That means something really important for us. It means that if we are to know the truth of the matter, we have to know this. Listen. You don't and won't ever do anything for God in your own strength or love or ability. Ever. The behavior and the attitude and the abandonment of the disciples here is a mirror of what each of us is like deep down. So let's abandon any notion of spiritual pride or vainglory, or ability, or arrogance. Let's get rid of this idea that we can somehow get our lives back together and meet God in the middle, and he can perhaps fill in some of the holes in our situation that we haven't gotten to yet. Let's abandon this idea that if we read a certain number of self-help books or if we listen to the right podcast or if we make the right practical transition in our life, our problems are going to go away. We'll all of a sudden have this deep well of spiritual strength and energy. That is just contrary to what the Bible so clearly teaches here. There's never a moment where we're able to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and say, don't worry, God, I got this. This is exactly what C.S. Lewis is talking about in, in Mere Christianity, probably my favorite chapter, his chapter on pride. I think I've got the quote. Claire, would you put that quote up? Here's what he writes. God wants you to know him wants to give you himself. He is trying to make you humble in order to make this possible, trying to take off a lot of silly, ugly, fancy dress in which we have all got ourselves up and are strutting around like the little idiots we are. God wants to get rid of the false self with all its look at me and aren't I a good boy and all its posing and posturing. To get even near it, even for a moment, is like a drink of cold water to a man in the desert. As if what the 11 disciples do isn't hard enough, right, for Jesus. They bail on him in his hour of need. There's also, thirdly, the famous betrayal of Jesus by Judas. So let's look at that. Judas betrays. And Mark set up that scenario for us last week in verses 10 and 11 and 18 through 20. And again, just live in the tragedy here for a moment. <clears throat> it's vivid. It's vivid. It's powerful. It's painful. I mean, Jesus is in the garden having just sweat blood as he prays. And Judas comes to him with this crowd of people with swords and clubs. And instead of coming up and slapping him in the face, instead of pointing a finger at him, Judas approaches Jesus and gives him a kiss. A kiss. A kiss of death. Right? Right? I mean, he uses one of the most intimate signals that humans possess to betray, to betray his friend, to betray his leader, to betray his rabbi. He's betraying God for something else, in this case, for 30 pieces of silver. And he's doing it in the most intimate and wicked and hostile way that we could imagine. And, you know, in the big picture, what we have to understand is this. Judas's life, and there's a lot of things we could say about Judas, but we have to at least say this. Judas's life and betrayal typifies fundamentally what sin is. You've got to get this, okay? If you want to understand Christianity, and I desperately want you to understand it, whether you believe it or not, I want you to have a clear idea of what it is. Here's what Christianity says. Sin fundamentally is betraying God. It is betraying God for someone or something else, whether it's money or power or pleasure or a person. It's living for another God and therefore stabbing the real God in the back. Now, Judas' betrayal happens in the Garden of Gethsemane, and really, it's the full flowering of the original betrayal that happened in another garden at the very beginning of the Bible, in the Garden of Edom, Eden. That is exactly what Adam and Eve do. They believe the lie that God does not love them, that God does not care for them, that God is not for them. They believe the lie that if they submit to God's kingship, their life is going to go out of control and it's going to be bad for them. They believe the lie and therefore betray God. They sin against him. They believe the lie of the evil one. That comes to full fruition here in the sin of Judas. It's so crucial to see that sin is not just rejecting God. It's not just saying, I don't like you, God. It's not just saying, God's not that important to me. Sin is more than that. It is cosmic treason. It is a betrayal of the one who loves you more than anyone else in the universe. It is to refuse to give to God his rightful place in the center of your heart. It's to refuse to make loving God your chief aim. It's to refuse to see that the source of all of your life and all of your joy and all of your blessing is in God and in knowing God and to look elsewhere instead. That's what Judas is doing. He's doing it for 30 pieces of silver. He's taking for 30 pieces of silver. He's taking away the one that is worth infinitely more than anything he can ever imagine. He is betraying the infinitely worthy and holy and majestic God of all life. Here's what the Holy Spirit, I think, in part wants to impress upon our hearts. He wants us to see in Judas the gravity of, and the weight and the seriousness of sin. Now, at the risk of getting all fire and brimstone here and talking about sin all the time, listen, if you want to get the gospel, you've got to get the weight and the seriousness and the gravity of sin. You must get a sense of how horrible and heinous and ugly it is. It is to betray and seek to destroy the one person who loves you more than anyone in the universe. And the reason Judas's story is in the Bible, other than just to move the narrative forward, is to help us see the ugliness of sin rightly. It's to lead us to repent. To not do what Judas does. To run away from such a life. It's to lead us. The point is to lead us to ask God for forgiveness for our betrayal of him. Judas is too hard-hearted, he's too far gone, his conscience is too seared to do such a thing. We know from scripture that Judas commits suicide just a few days later because he finally realized that when you exchange the glory of God for a lie, you will never get what the lie was promising And so Mark, as he writes this, and the Holy Spirit, as he inspires this, is calling each of us to see this as an opportunity to turn away from betraying God, to admit that we are guilty of cosmic treason, of infinite, epic betrayal, and to plead God's mercy. Have you done that? Have you seen sin for what it is? Have you, have you run away from it, from the ugliness of it, from the hideousness of it, from the horror of sin? Beg God for mercy and know that he forgives you. Don't lose sight, as the Puritans say, of the sinfulness of sin. The contrast in the story and the tale of Judas call us to such a mindset, to such a commitment. Maybe today you need to run away from your treachery against God for the first time do it don't wait run run from sin to jesus the disciples abandon him judas betrays him he stabs him in the back and then lastly we see jesus is arrested to round it out here as judas betrays him the soldiers with swords and clubs come in jesus is arrested there in in the garden and we saw in 50 already everyone leaves him he's alone And even these mysterious verses, you know, they're in 51 and 52. That's probably Mark, by the way. That's who that person is, most likely. No one knows. But the best guess is that that's Mark. And the point is that everyone in the general vicinity that might have been pals with Jesus bails as soon as possible, running away naked down the street. The point of the story is that no one stood by Jesus. He had to face the cross alone. He had to drink the cup alone. He had to bear our sins alone. He had to suffer alone. And again, here at the end, we find that Jesus submits to this arrest. Amazing, this unjust, wicked arrest. Look at what he says. He does it, verse 49, in order that the scriptures might be fulfilled. In other words, still, Jesus, listen, Jesus is trusting in God's sovereign plan. Jesus allows evil to triumph for a time so that good might win in the end. Jesus lets Satan win the battle, so to speak, right, so that Jesus can win the war. And so that we can win the war with him. And here, you know, as we wrap up, okay, I want us to consider again what Jesus is experiencing here is for us. Uh, Like the disciples, every time we sin, every time we sin against God, we, we betray him and abandon him. We leave our first love, as one of the prophets has said. We're all we're all rebels. It's the truth. It's the ugly truth. We're all treacherous. We're all haters of God. That's not putting it too strongly. And yet it is just for people like us that Jesus endured such unimaginable agony and scorn and pain and conflict. It's for you and for me that Jesus suffered. It's for you and for me that he underwent the torrent and the flood of all of God's supreme and righteous hatred against all that is evil. The story is attempting to to sear into our heads and into our hearts the twin truths of, of the gospel. The first is this. This is what it costs for God to forgive your sin. This is what it costs for God to save us. This is what it costs for God to bring us back home to himself. And yet, secondly, it shows us the depth of the love of God in Jesus. Which one of us would ever give up our child? Our child. For someone that hates us. For someone that has sought every waking moment of their lives to destroy us. For someone who thinks that their life is better off if we were dead, which one of us would give our only child to die for a person like that? None of us. None of us can love like that. You see, only God, only God can love like that. Only God's love. Is that radical? Is that crazy? Is that off the charts? Amazing. If you can't see that, you can't yet understand this story. If you can't see that, you can't yet understand the gospel. God gives Jesus to face his wrath because he wants us to face his love. You know, one of the most moving sermons, (laughs) one of the most moving sermons I've ever read is something I read again this week. It's by a guy named Jonathan Edwards, he's an 18th century American pastor. And the sermon is on this text, and it's called Christ's Agony. And uh, I'm just going to close with this, because I can't do better. I mean, I, I, could, I guess I could just read Edward's sermons every week. But for now, I'm just going to do this. It's, it's, this is one of the most moving passages I've read this week in studying for this, and so I wanted to just close with this quote. Not all of it's on the screen. Some of it might be up there. But let, listen to this, and let me read it for us, okay? The strength of Christ's love more especially appears in this, that he resolved that he would bear God's wrath and his pain rather than those poor sinners who he had loved from all eternity should perish. When the dreadful cup was before him, Jesus did not say within himself, Why should I, who am so great and glorious a person, infinitely more honorable than all the angels Why should I go to plunge myself into such dreadful, amazing torments for worthless, wretched people that cannot be profitable to God or me, and that deserve to be hated by me and not to be loved? Why should I, who have been living from all eternity in the enjoyment of the Father's love, go to cast myself into a furnace for them that never can pay me back for it? Why should I yield myself to be thus crushed by the weight of divine wrath? For them who have no love to me and are my enemies, they do not deserve any union with me and never did and never will do anything to recommend themselves to me. What shall I be the richer for having saved a number of miserable haters of God and me who deserve to have divine justice glorified in their destruction? Such, however, was not the language of Christ's heart in these circumstances. But on the contrary, his love held out. And he resolved even then to take the cup and drink it. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you took the cup for our sin. That you bore the anger of God's righteous indignation against all that is broken in this world. You bore all of it. You drank it fully. We could never do that. It would cause us to forever be separated from you. We don't deserve you to do that for us, and yet you've done it because of your love, out of the depths of your love. You didn't say, you know what, God? I don't want to do this after all. I'm done with these people. No, you endured to the end. You bore the cross. You scorned its shame. You took our guilt like a lamb led to the slaughter. God, you did these things Simply and solely because of the free grace with which you have for us in the gospel. And God, we ask this morning that you would help us to see and to know the power and the depth of both our sin and of your grace. We ask this morning that we would see the great divide between those two things. That we would see our own undeservedness and that we would see how you have completely overwhelmed our sin by your love in the cross and that it would change us. Such love we can never experience from a spouse or a child or a parent, from anyone. We can only experience it from you, and so we ask that we would relish your love for us today and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.